This is it. The putt to win the tournament. If you sink it, the championship is yours. But on your backswing, your hat falls over your eyes. Is this how you're running your business? Poor visibility because you're still relying on spreadsheets and outdated finance software? To see the full picture, you need to upgrade to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system to power your growth. With visibility and control of your financials, inventory, HR, planning, budget, and more, NetSuite is everything you need to grow, all in one place. With NetSuite, you can automate your processes and close your books in no time while staying well ahead of your competition. 93% of surveyed businesses increased their visibility and control after upgrading to NetSuite. Over 27,000 businesses already use NetSuite. And right now, through the end of the year, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind financing program to those ready to upgrade at netsuite.com slash c-suite. Head to netsuite.com slash c-suite for special end-of-year financing on the number one financial system for growing businesses. netsuite.com slash c-suite. Welcome to C-Suite Radio. We all tell ourselves stories of who we are and why. But we forget that we have the power to define them. That no idea grows from mewling striped cum to teeth at your throat tiger. Without a little help, some guidance and a whole lot of love along the way. I am Jared Surf, and this is Here Be Tigers. Hi all, I'm your host, Jared Surf, and this is Here Be Tigers, your storytelling guide. Here with me today, after a brief vacation into other realms, is my co-host, Hello, I am David Herman, a.k.a. Ramnesis of the Brothers Herman and host of Otter Worlds. We're today to provide you with a bit of a preface for our upcoming miniseries on the seven rules, or I, I sometimes call them reflections or guides to writing stories that sell, that compel, that inspire, that drive. These are seven things I found myself teaching and telling all the time. So before we go deeply into each of the seven, I thought it'd be great to have Dave on again to talk about what we do before we even try. Lesson zero, if you will. And to start there, I think it's important to address the notions of critical versus creative state of mind. Because I think you, we've all heard folks say they are or are not in one of these two, or they need to be in order to. But I don't think, for the most part, we have a clear sense of what defines these. So before I say what I used to teach, Dave, when you hear critical versus creative state of mind, what comes to you? Uh, it actually depends on where I am at the moment. Uh, but if you want the extremes of both, of them, a creative state of mind is the floodgates are open and you are just making connections like mad. Sometimes you can actually filter through them. Sometimes you can't. Uh, but a creative state of mind is one where you have ideas. And it, the fact that you're having ideas is more important than the quality of the ideas. And a critical state of mind is one where you are evaluating the, the worth of the ideas or specifically the usability of the ideas. And so a critical state of mind is one where um, the, the quality of the idea is much more important than having one. So you could say the first one is better to have a bad idea than to, um, than to not have any idea. And, this, and the second one is better to have no idea than a bad one. So in one sense, 
the creative mind is generative, the critical mind is selective. Yes. I know when I teach it, and I, I tend to use statements that are intentionally dichotomous to help you frame them. These are not if, these, these are not binaries, but they're just, I'm saying it wrong. Binaries do have a certain use, and particularly when you're beginning to consider a thing, it's sometimes easy to see how different they are and can be. So with that in mind, the guideline I often use when first teaching someone about the ways they can identify a critical or creative state of mind are as follows. When I speak about the critical state of mind, the the guiding question usually for me is what is, right? What is this? What is that? What is that leading to? What is this about? With the creative state of mind, typically you're in a, typically you're following the question, I should say, of what if. This is, I'm forgetting my numbers, but I think it's rule number two. Ask yourself what if to follow the why. You're not sure in the creative state of mind where you'll arrive. Mm-hmm. With the critical state of mind, there's typically a greater sense that you're going to arrive or an understanding that you're going to arrive at certainty. And this leads to kind of the other way I use to divide the two. The critical state of mind, I find, is interruptive and disruptive. It presumes that you know, that you should know before you try, which is useful, of course, because we want to, with our limited time, space, resources, be as close to certainty as we can in our everyday life. Is this likely to work? Is this not likely to work? The act of creating, however, requires that we let go, step into the unknown, to surrender what we'd like, to give space, memory, time to what we'll see, hear, think, feel, find, and sometimes with little attention to our own needs, wants, and desires, which I think, particularly in our everyday life, the critical mind tries to adhere to. How does this thing help me in what I need, want, or desire right now? right? In the project we're trying to accomplish, part of the selection process is, or part of, I guess, to your terms, how to determining the worth here falls to whether it helps you now in the immediate future or in the long term, right? Mm-hmm. And if so, how so? The critical and creative state of minds are not unique to any individual. They're not something one of us has and the other doesn't. It's like water. Water is a vapor. Water is a solid. Water is a liquid. They're all states water can occupy. At the same time, a glass of ice water, for instance, you can have creative states of mind that are more critical and critical states of mind that are more creative. There are times where when you're just being uh, creative, it is, like I said, you're not caring about the quality of ideas at all. You're just getting them down. And then there are other times where it just seems like one idea leads to the next idea, leads to the next idea, but they flow. If, if this is true, then this must be true. And there's a much more structured element to how it's writing itself. And I'd still call that more creative, or at least in my experience, it is because it's like, oh, then that means this. Oh, then that means this. And everything, you're, just, you're still riffing, you're still creating, but it's more controlled. So it, there, it is actually a spectrum, but usually like... People have a hard time getting from one side to the other or moving from one side to the other. Well, I think that's the, the most difficult part here is probably the inertia we encounter when trying to move from one to the other. Because what you illustrated there is that at its height, at its best, we shift from one to the other without feeling or note, making note of it. We're just in one state and the next, or in some ways, perhaps both. It's fluid. But to get to that point, to the place where you're not stuck in one or the other, where as you need to, you can move into the one that works best for you. That can be difficult because often in our own days, in our own lives, we have kind of a rhythm that we find, right? I know from 
when I worked in grad school, which is where I began to make note of my own kind of critical versus creative process more so, I would always get up earlier in the morning and read and do all of my required an analytical work while I ate my breakfast. I'd read the news, I'd read my articles, I'd make notes. And then somewhere around the afternoon, I would put all of that aside. I'd have all of my classes over with. And then I would do the work that required finding out the new, discovering within the unknown, the creative work, as it were. Then in the evening, it kind of, for me, would dip back into the critical again. And typically at night, <laughs> late at night, usually, between, say, like midnight and four, there's that one last slide into the creative where my mind is just adrift and floating, and I'm watching things or reading things usually that give it a seed of an or, or kernel of an idea for the next day, if not that night. So for me, there's kind of a circadian rhythm, I find, and with a lot of creators I teach this is often the case to their day that you need to recognize. Mm-hmm. It's also worth no- noting that there, there are certain mental states that are much more conducive. I don't guarantee that these are going to be the same for everyone, but I can tell you boredom surges my creativity, whereas actually trying to be creative almost never works for me. Right, and this this is important. The act of trying gets in the way of being for you. Very much so. You create creativity, and to a lesser extent, uh, uh, criticality are not ends in and of themselves. You can't aspire to them. You're gonna really get in your own way if you do. Instead, they are means to an end, and it is in pursuing that end, whatever it happens to be, that you end up accessing one or the other. So I guess the important part of lesson zero here today, the first takeaway, is that the critical and creative states of mind are fluid and they are tools. They're not physical tools, but they are tools, Mm -hmm. nonetheless. And that it's important for you as an individual to start observing when you tend to rely on one or the other throughout your day. Maybe this works best if someone makes note of it alongside of you. Maybe you just document what you do over the course of a day for a week doesn't have to be anything fancy, just a quick bullet line here or there. See if there are any rhythms or patterns or times, or if not given days or times, things that you do that tend to induce that state, right? You might already have rules or rituals or things you try or rights that lead to a critical or creative state, things you do unconsciously. Place to look, for instance, you will inevitably find points of the day where you're all of a sudden like, oh, I wish I wasn't here. I wish I was at home writing, <laughs> doing this stuff because I have the best ideas right now. I wish I wasn't in this meeting. I need to ignore whatever is being said because I figured out how to solve the thing we're talking about. Exactly. Now, you need to look at what got you there because very because there's a reason why all of a sudden that moment was really good it might be circadian rhythm it might be the boringness of the meeting it might be the prep work that or the headspace you had to get into for the meeting or any of a number of things but start tracking that because you often there's more to there's much like developing a new habit or breaking an old one there's often some a lot of things that feed into a behavior and you need to find the the roots before you can actually access the behavior. So to your point, as I started observing for most of my academic work and my own creative work as well, which is critical too, but in both my own work and my academic work, that rhythm of reading and analysis of breaking things down, integrating them, making sense of them, seeing how they worked, call it digesting things, if you will. But the intake, the provision of thoughts, ideas, concepts, things to kind of chew and contemplate, let's sit and swirl around, whatever image works best for you. 
I found for myself, I needed to do that before I could enter the creative state. So really for me, it was less about the whole circadian rhythm throughout the day than the process where I have to, before I am creative, engage in something critical first that is interesting, challenging, and different or new so that there is an undercurrent, as it were. There is something to sustain or to get the subconscious mind working on. So for me and my work, yeah, it's not just like, as you were saying in the meeting, it's not just that you're bored in the meeting or you wish to be somewhere else. There's a series of thoughts that led from whatever was being started, you heard to wherever your mind is at now. Unravel that, step back, start. This is something I used to teach back when I was looking or back when I was coaching composition for in college, the idea of claim, assumption, and implication. Now, this might sound incredibly erudite and boring, but it's it's easy enough to apply this to any line of thought or reasoning you're having, whether it's academic, creative, or otherwise. And here it goes. You have three things you're breaking out from a thought. There's the claim, the assumption, and the implication. The claim, the thing you are taking to be true. The sky is blue, claim. The assumption is what you're assuming to be true, to have led to this thing that you're now taking to be true. That might there seem like hair splitting, right? There, if for the sky to be blue, there must be a sky. The implication is what follows from those two. If there is a sky and the sky is blue, then it could be a number of things. Usually there are other claims that lead assumptions and implications that lead into this. And as you'll note listening, the next implication is the assumption for the claim that follows it and so on ad infinitum. You can also work it back in the, in the other direction. Yes. Now that you know, now the claim is there's a sky. Well, what's the assumption that that means? Right. So in the case, let's use the meeting model. The meeting is an example. You got to the brilliant idea. And you may not remember entirely how you arrived there, but you scribble down brilliant idea. Or hopefully you don't just scribble down brilliant idea. You scribble down the brilliant idea. And then, of course, someone asks you what you're doing. And you say, oh, I forgot the solution. And they say, great, how? And all you have is the thing without being able to walk them to how you got there, which is the same way you arrive at the end of a scene without having the rest of it described. Mm-hmm. So using this exercise, claim, assumption, implication, again, whatever language feels right for you. This is me relying on language I used to use. You can just as easily take the thing you're at the end. You can take the statement at the end, the brilliant idea, and start picking at what you assumed or took to be true to get to that. What other people said, what you heard, what you knew before the meeting. All of those, going back to truths of rule, story, and characters, in fiction or not, right? Things that are true, big and little true that have led you in this moment to the inevitability of what you'd write. And it's going to be work at first. That's fine. It might even be confusing. You might get lost. It's less important that you identify and that give it instance how you arrived. It's more important that you get into the practice of trying to, of being conscious of your own thought processes. And this is why, for instance, I have a voice recorder. Because as all of you probably know from having listened to me on the show, I talk faster than I think. Oh, how about this Demonstrating one? Here. Go ahead. How about this one? You essentially have two lines of thought: the one that's leaping forward and yes. the one that's filling in. And the one that's leaping forward comes out with in, in you speaking. And it's not actually important for you to listen to the one that's filling in all the time. It's it's more important that you get the the the, the good yes. ideas down. If that also leads to you getting some bad ideas down, that you'll that you'll dump once you start filling it in oh that's fine too but better to get those to capture those bad ideas with the good than to not capture either right and to your point we'll leave this in for editing just because it demonstrates 
I am a parallel thinker in the sense that usually, and this is why I record, I can capture the good ideas that emerge amidst the terrible ones. And then when I'm listening back, I have the linear encounter or critical encounter, right? A critical state of mind experience, as, as it were, with I'll be in a critical state when I'm listening to their creative mind. That's the better way to say it. And it took me a while of listening to what my mind is like in the creative state to hear how non-linear it is. Mm. That I would, in fact, write, send, write scenes in circular motion. I would do them in parallel. I'd have what's going on and seeing the dialogue not being chronological and editing that and dog-earing and putting whole chunks of it back so that it filled in pieces that were missing when I initially laid out the beats because stuff would arrive that might have been subtext or subconscious. I might not have known or fully understood it until I teased out everything that was there, until I found all the truths of the scene. And for those of you who've ever taught students how to write, you'll remember this. Typically, by the end of their essay, they get to their thesis, right? This is first draft, best draft. And usually, when I'm speaking into the recorder, that's my first draft. And sometimes podcasting is like that, too where it takes me a moment of drafting to figure out how it is I actually want to say what I'm going to say, because the part of the mind that orders things is, as Dave said, behind the part of the mind that is coming up with it in pace. Another way of putting it is that the mind, the part of your mind that orders things is not a single part of your mind. You basically have a lot of processes going on at once, and then there is one that's assembling all of them. And, and so you know, you're going to have a part of your mind that's like, hey, from a character standpoint, this is an interaction that's really good. You're going to have another one that's along the lines of, of like, from an event standpoint, this would drive things towards the edge. Those may or may not meet. You'll know later. Well, here's a good example of it. I was, for the revision lessons I'm doing for the folks on the Patreon, going through the first five scenes of the prologue, which is not something I particularly wanted to do, but I think it's an important act to do. And I'm at the fifth and most intense scene, which is an incredibly complicated scene of things happening in the room above and in the one where ostensibly the camera is located, right? What do you see on screen or in frame? Mm -hmm. And there are beats that occur in the room above that disrupt what's happening below. And three quarters of the way through the scene, I realized that an obvious moment of distraction, a big thing collapses, a bureau collapses upstairs, the character threatening the one down in the kitchen gets caught up in that and loses the moment of threat. Obviously, there's a follow-up from that. You lost the presence you had. You lost the active threat you were providing because you got distracted. What happens next? It's not your beat or moment or spotlight to act. It's the other person you're threatening who responds in that moment. And true classic Chekhov's gun throughout the entirety of the scene, the character being threatened in this moment has a box the length of his arm span it's quite clearly containing some kind of firearm or other weapon. It just sits, as Chekhov's guns do, in the box, unfired, right? But the, the potential for it to be there, to be a thing that is an active danger, has been in the whole scene. So in the moment of distraction, and I've seen, I should have seen this coming, right? The character being threatened taps the box with his foot two times before as kind of like a nervous ticker behavior, you think. Mm-hmm. When the person threatening him is distracted, Springs the lid open, and now he's got his own firearm under the table, situated. And I've worked on this chapter before. That should have been such an obvious thing in the rhythm and flow of the scene. It's an inevitability. But I had been so fixated on the character dynamics, the truths, their portions of it, right, that process, that I lost sight of all of the other moving parts in the scene. So 
this is why I think some folks tend to say that either they're not creative, they're afraid of being creative, or they're told in some ways they're too creative because they get lost in the details and don't know how to find their way mm-hmm. out of it. You're going to get lost. It's important to note here. In the act of trying to listen to yourself think and trying to differentiate what your critical state of mind sounds like versus your critical one, when you shift or transition from the other, you're going to be confused and lost at first. And that's fine. Before we get any further, let us I know we've talked a bit about this in the past, but you had mentioned as we were talking in the prep of this episode that sometimes you were told you were too creative. Yeah. Oh yeah, no. The the it, it's funny because one of the the notes we were we were taking um, in the setup for this was you know people who think they're not creative and I'm and I just was like of all of the things that's one that's a um, a complaint I have never been able to access because yeah indeed I was always told things like I'm too creative um, or too disruptive or what have you and mine's not where it should be. It doesn't matter. There are all sorts of variants. I never had the luxury, if you want to call it a luxury, of thinking I'm not creative. So it was always more of a matter of figuring out how to harness that. I don't run into that thing where, like, where I go, well, I'm not going to be able to think of anything good. At best, I'm, I'm like, well, I'm not going to be able to think of anything good now, or I'm not going to be able to think of anything good in this context. But the idea that I can't come up with things is just absurd. I know I can, which I realize, you know, some people are going to be like hearing that and they're like, oh, you're so lucky. Well, no, it's its own challenge. It is. I, there were times even in classes I've had where a professor would say, would you just shut up already? And I'm going, I, I'm trying to get to the point I'm thinking of or finding, mm-hmm. which for me is a verbal act. Exactly. It's, it's also worth noting that the idea, the, the thought of I'm too creative is not actually anywhere near as far from the idea of I'm not creative as you might think it is. They're, they're both fallacious. Exactly. They're both essentially walls you build up in your head to justify not doing. Yes. And typically, I'm sure enough, plenty of folks who listen to the show or have or have friends and family who've experienced this. You go to your art class, you do something ugly, and the art teacher goes, you should never do this. Or what the hell is that? Mm-hmm. The, this, this is a scar I think a lot of folks carry from camp or school or all those early efforts to be creative when they're told that the thing they've made is not good or that they're no good at making things or creating things. Or maybe they weren't even told that. They were told like something that like it really wasn't positive or negative but they were already feeling critical and they reflected that in whatever right. they were told. You might have felt the thing you're making wasn't that great, but you still wanted to be acknowledged for the act of making, of trying right. to make. And your the response you receive is, mm. or, mm. oh, that's so nice. Or, yes, we'll put it up on the refrigerator, the metaphorical refrigerator that all things that... Or you have the one where it's like, you know, you're dead certain that whatever you've just come up with is not good. Um, and then to be praised for that just it sets up this really weird feedback loop where it's like well now i can't trust anything you say right it's like okay do i only make things that i don't think are good that other people do because then what am i making and for whom Mm -hmm. i've encountered that before too and let's be honest creatives are not always the best judge of their own work in the moment they make it yes but so too are folks who don't think they're creative Mm -hmm. and and let's make no mistake here there are moments you're going to run into where you're not going to be able to be creative. That does happen. There are moments where I can't make sense of a thing even when I normally can. 
Exactly. That is not the same thing as being perpetually uncreative. That is just an acknowledgement that now is not the right time to be doing it. Being perpetually one or the other, believing you're one or the other, being told you're perpetually one or the other is a story that you internalize. Mm -hmm. And then, yes, it's going to inhibit you because it's an expectation that you're always either trying to fight against or reinforce. So before we go any further, how did you, let's talk a little bit about that. How did you grow or surpass the notion that you were too creative? Well, a lot of it um, actually came from starting to put ideas together in constructive ways. It's like, I can have a lot of ideas. What do I do with them? Mm -hmm. So it's, it's a little hard to answer that question because it was in so many different aspects of life. So it, a lot of it was just a learned skill of being able to um, determine which of the ideas was useful right now. Let's, let's take it a different way then. What criteria did you first find yourself using to determine if an idea was useful? That's also a really hard one to do because <laughs> that's a great deal on what you are doing at the moment. It's, it, it's all, I would say for me, it was probably like, if this is true and this is true, then this, then they should meet up in other ways. So if you found yourself finding, if you found yourself building something that had internal consistency. Yeah, basically. If there was some way in which other people could look at it and make sense of it too. Or that I was confident enough that it made sense to me that I didn't care if other people saw it or not. Right, and I didn't even have to be certain what the consistency was. It just had to feel consistent. And this is important too, because there are different reasons we make things. Right. And it's also, it's worth noting that some the, 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 it was most often an artwork that I didn't care if other people couldn't see the consistency or not. Uh, in writing, it was like, well, if you're not bringing people along with you, <laughs> and, and, and that's an argument that can be made out for art too, if you're, uh, you know, but my artwork was more made for me, whereas when most of my early writing was made because it was an assignment. I just had a mental word salad of my fan fiction is haute cuisine, hmm. <laughs> which <laughs> I think I, my mind was sleeping toward haute couture, but... <laughs> Oh, cuisine kind of seems appropriate. The the other thing that I started doing that was very helpful is writing stuff down, but like not worrying about it fitting together. Like I, I will write the same thing. I will do a draft within a draft within a draft. I'll just start, okay, like maybe I'm doing a script or maybe I'm writing up a, 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 a forum post or maybe I'm writing up a D&D campaign or something like that. And uh, I will start writing and then I'll, I'll hit this one point and I'm like, there are three or four different ways I could take it. And I'll start down bouncing back and forth between the paragraphs for like a couple of them. And then if I end up deciding I like one better, I'll take the others and drop them down to the very bottom and just leave them there if I ever decide I want to follow up on them. Well, this is important, I think, because when we get to the point of selecting or judging the things we create, the idea of what's useful and what's not useful right now matters. Right. And I think what I'm doing when I'm doing multiple paragraphs at the same time is I'm, I'm basically trying to confuse the critical side so that I'm not going, oh, well, that's not good. That's not good. I'm just trying to get them all down or enough of them down that, that a form starts taking shape. Only once that happens it, can I start evaluating because I can get locked up in the idea of I know what I want to say. There's no good way of saying it. Sort of uh, playing off the, the notion the mind is shapely, that eventually you will carve away enough to figure out what is underneath. Mm -hmm. I do find that it's helpful if you, in your efforts to either break through the notion that you are 
too creative or never creative or not creative, if you have some physical, tangible proof, some artifact you can use to remind yourself otherwise. It can be something you've made, ideally just for you. It can be, well, I'll give an example from my own work. In the earliest drafts of the book, I was perhaps more concerned with the words in the story, and it made the tale itself rather obtuse. So for me, the moment when I could give the written piece and some character details to an illustrator and have them create a depiction of a character that other folks recognized as that character, well, yes, obviously there's a use for the work itself and as a guideline for other forms of IP and so on. But for me in particular, having this artifact that I can look at still to this day that I recognize as the character the illustrator did that other people do too, even if they haven't read as much as of the tales either the illustrator or I have, if they only know a few surface details, they can go, that's Adam, that's Connor, that's Sophie, right? Mm-hmm. The fact that I can look at that artifact as proof that I created a thing that exists and makes sense in other people's lives too. Even yes, for me, there are days where I don't feel like I can do that. There, I still have that sensation sometimes. I still have that fear every day I go on the trail that I'll write nothing, write years to the contrary. Mm-hmm. And I think it's important. The, the fear, the narrative that you rely on, it's not going to go away easily, or perhaps even at all. You just need evidence, as Dave was saying, to the contrary. Oh, another good piece of evidence, like a bunch of like writing or drawing prompts or something like that. There's, I can, we could, I think we've gotten into the reason why this works in other episodes. But you know, just a series of prompts, like you know, these two people meet. What you know, what's the first thing they say to each other? The goal is, of all of these prompts, and you can find examples online, or you can make some yourself. Is you know, just go, start, and and give yourself just enough, even if you only get one line down. And the goal is to get something down quickly without thinking about it. Because congratulations, you do, you follow a writing prompt and you say just about anything, you're creative. It's right there. And if you think it's not, if you think that what you just wrote isn't creative, well, that's the critical side of your mind talking. So at the very least, you've driven yourself in the other direction. But (laughs) Uh, the but the point here is that just getting these things down, just following it, well, writing prompts constrain. They give you a very small area to just come up with something in. It's the same as like improv artists going, you know, with the, with some of those exercises, like okay, okay quickly do um, nine uses for bubble gum, and and just trying to come up with anything at all. That bizarrely counts as creative. It doesn't matter that you're not going to use it. It's a I think importantly here, and these are another two takeaways, often people don't feel they're creative or they're too creative because they've lost sight of the limitations they can use to guide themselves. You're not working in a void. You don't have to focus on the requirements, no, but you can start very small. And particularly if you want to try building towards something larger, take a thing that in reality doesn't actually matter as an exercise. Mm -hmm. If I go and decide to start doing bicep curls, and I screw up my first month of doing bicep curls, that's not surprising. I haven't built the muscle memory yet. Right. I haven't figured my form out right. Am I not even doing the right number of reps or the right number of weights? There are so many particulars. I've been doing martial arts for years. Sometimes the hardest thing is remembering where exactly your pinky is supposed to be, and then remembering that you're not supposed to focus on where your pinky is supposed to be, but letting go of that because... 
the more important thing is your breath, is your ability to just be in the moment and adjust accordingly. So yes, the exercise, which typically relies on some small set of limitations or focus, is essential. In order to get around the fears you have before you try, one, and two, to discover maybe, if not this time, then the next, that there might be a little joy in trying. Then mm-hmm. there's also the practical element of you look at any singer, and before they go out on stage, they're warming up. You look at any sports uh, player, and before they go out, they're going to warm up. And what the exercise is, is different. It varies for what you're trying to do. But, you know, and be, being a writer is no different. You need a warm-up. Prompts are a great way of doing this. It can be anything. I, we started this game in my family years ago. We call it Squiggle. It is the simplest drawing game in the world. You take a writing implement. You take a surface. Someone draws a meaningless squiggle and then hands the implement to the next person. Whoever has that next puts down what they want and passes it around. You have no idea what's going to result from this. You have no control over the shape of it, the destiny of it. You are literally just playing. And I think it's important because we often forget as adults to play. Mm -hmm. And if you're going to create, you have to engage in the playful aspects of it. You have to find the joy and you have to be willing to be surprised. Those are what will give you the impetus, the desire, the other results that don't satisfy your fears. Because you know what's going to satisfy your fear. You'll get lost, you'll screw up, you'll get bored, you'll get tired, you'll feel unaccomplished. That's not new, right? Mm-hmm. Pick an exercise, refine and practice that exercise. Do it socially or with a group of that makes it easier for you. No judgment, right? It matters the result of the exercise does not matter. The act of doing the exercise does. People would write uh, a, the first sentence of a story, and or they would, they would write the first two sentences of the story. It doesn't matter what it was. It didn't have to be good because of the next bit. They'd then cover up one sentence and pass it to the next person who would have to write the next sentence, knowing only the second sentence. They then would cover up <laughs> yes. the second sentence, and the next person would only know um, the third and fourth sentences. And or it, and it would keep going. Each person would only uh, no, sorry. Each person would only know the sentence that came before theirs, but not what led them there. And they had to come up with something. And it's ridiculous, but it's great for writing prompts. And then you get something ridiculous on the other end. I have seen very successful storytelling sessions with uh, with people each taking turns writing chapters. The point in all of this, and it actually reminds me of a childhood game we played uh, with our youth groups called Ha. And I suppose it's kind of dated now, but everyone would lie at like a a T intersection. 
your back of your head on someone else's stomach and the first person in the chain would laugh. And I don't entirely know the physiognomy to it or the biochemistry to it, but you can't in response not laugh. It is so weird and absurd and disruptive and unexpected that it just digs into that deep human response of I'm confused and baffled and this is silly, so I'm going to laugh. And then because you do, the next person does until you are laughing and you might even forget why you are in the first place. And in that sense, it's a, it was used particularly for like icebreaking, et cetera, but also to show you how easy it is to change your state of mind. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I, I go on the trail. I still have that fear. I'm not going to write anything. We talked about this in episode, I think, 24. So my exercise, my challenge to myself, because I, I knew this, as I said earlier in the episode, I want to have a whole pile of information, of resources, of material, of matter, mana, whatever you want to call it, before I go out onto the trail. So my urge more often than not, beyond just consuming a narrative of some kind to get my mind going, is to read everything I wrote before so my head is full of stuff. But there's a critical point for me where if I put too much of what I was writing before right into the, into short-term memory, right? If I put too much of that into my current thought process, I don't move any farther ahead. So I watched this, I studied this, I tried to figure out how little could I work with from the previous day's work. And you know what I realized? I needed one or two lines. Mm. As long as I had the last two lines and a sense of why those were the last two lines of what had led to them, truths of world story and character, all the assumptions that led to these being the claims as it were, right? I could put the rest to the side and keep going because the purpose of the walk is not to revise, it's to find. Mm -hmm. So, And this is important when you're coming up with your exercise, when you're, and I guess maybe we're, we're diving a little bit here into the rituals and the rites you can engage in. But as an example, when you're playing with exercises and you're observing what pushes you toward a critical or creative state of mind, that's the purpose of those initial ones. If I listen to music, if I don't listen to music, if I have silence, if I'm in a crowded space, if I change my circumstances in these ways, what pushes me toward being creative? What pushes me toward being critical? And then how can I build rituals and rites around those accordingly so that I can decide which one in a moment I want to be? Or if you want to break this down into a, a, an exercise in its own right, the statements, I am not creative, or I am too creative, or what have you, are very simple declarative statements, and which is the problem. They, they brook no exception. Uh, which is fundamentally untrue. It, it, that's one of the things that makes them fundamentally untrue. It makes them so insidious. Well, they're absolutely. So the next time you say, I am not creative, add a word or a something like that. I am not creative unless. I am not creative except when. I am not creative, whatever it is, then fill in whatever that next step is. That's your first exercise. Figure that one. It, 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 like write something in. Maybe you're right, maybe you're wrong. Um, but start following and see if it works. You have to fill in what changes you into that creative set of the step of mind. But instead of like going hunting, start with that. Start with the, the I'm sorry, I'm saying this very badly. The point is. <laughs> we are modeling what we're talking about. <laughs> yeah. The, the point is don't let yourself get caught up in a declarative. Just start by assuming a simple declarative is wrong. And, and there's always an exception to it. Go and find out what it is. That's that's the what if, right? This is true, but what if it's not? Or what if it's not always true? 
No, I don't care because you're not dwelling on the declarative. You're dwelling on the exceptions to the declarative. That's what I'm getting at. Yes, the it might only I might only be creative when the cat is meowing under the light of a full moon. Exactly. Okay. But now instead of sitting there thinking that this declarative is just always true, you're searching for a case where it isn't. You're not living under the declarative. You're deliberately trying to step out of it, but you're not doing so. You know, for you're doing, but you're giving yourself a reason to. You're giving yourself a quest. You're giving yourself an end. Well, you, then you're 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 creating for yourself a little journey to go on. The exactly. investigation of it is in what states am I? Mm -hmm. In a sense, you're playing with the null hypothesis here. You're taking the world you think is yours, and you're looking at the other possible worlds that might be yours too. I was a poet and a short story writer. I never thought I'd write books because they're such different creatures. And one of my writing teachers in undergrad said, no, this is a book you're working on. And I thought he was mad. I'm here to get my degree and work in PR, marketing, social media, consulting firms, et cetera, et cetera, and so on. And <laughs> despite all of that, the thing I've worked on the longest is that book, which is now three. It took me time, though, to see myself as not just someone who writes, but as a writer. And, and what's interesting about that journey is the entire time that you saw yourself, there are all the, the moments where you see yourself like as, oh, no, I'm not a book writer, or even the moments where you see yourself as I am a book writer, those aren't very useful mental states. No. <laughs> they, they just aren't. The entire time that you were writing this book, the most, the, 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 you know, you were writing this book before you knew you were a book writer. So the statement, I am a book writer or I'm not a book writer, were completely superfluous to writing this. Yes. They just got in the way. There's a reason the Zen cone, the finger is not the moon, is so old. And that's just one of many ways to share that, to, to express that same parable where the thing you obsess over is not the thing, is not the, oh, I've said this probably too on the show, if you meet the Buddha, kill him. If you meet the manifestation of the thing you're chasing, it's probably not the real thing because you're too focused on your idea of it, right? I was contemplating this before with body image. You can take a picture of yourself. You can look at someone else's representation of you. Both are supposed to be more accurate than what you see of yourself, but you still see them through your eyes. You still think of yourself as a creative or not through your own life. And it's essential to realize that you have control over how you perceive the things you are told, that you live, that you experience every day. Acknowledge myself as a book, as a book writer and then think, well, my book isn't very good. And then comes the question, well, then why am I writing it? Well, here's the thing. I, I mean, I, I think this is a really good piece of advice. Your mileage may vary. That thing, that ideal, that, that the story, the image, the, the just out of you, the, the image that you can't, that you keep trying to draw and it's never quite what you see in your head. That thing that you see in your head doesn't exist. It's not even <laughs> in your head. It's not there. Uh, as an anecdote, or not an anecdote, but as, as an example, for years, I've been plagued by this thing that'll happen occasionally where I wake up having like a brilliant idea, and but I don't bother writing it down. And uh, a little while later, I realized I had forgotten that idea. It was so brilliant if I could just get there and I try recreating what was leading to it and I can't come up with anything. Everything I come up with was is just stupid. 
And it took me a while to realize, yeah, no, I, I wasn't having a good idea. I was waking up, but I wasn't fully awake. And so what was a really stupid idea sounded like a great idea. And because I couldn't see all the things that were done with it. You had the idea that you had a good idea. Right. The great idea never existed. You, as a creative, will spend time chasing this thing that you think you can see. And it's good that you're chasing it. You're seeing little bits and pieces of it, but you're not actually chasing it. It doesn't actually exist. The little bits and pieces you see of it are not part of one unified thing. They are part of the creative process. You're seeing things that could be, but you're seeing a lot of them. And then as a part of the creative process, you're stitching them together in a sort of Frankenstein. And because you saw the original things and you assumed that they were the thing you were searching for, you, that Frankenstein seems like a pale shade of what you originally saw, but it's actually the only complete version because the other things weren't complete. I do like that your analogy here is the reanimated corpse is the thing you made, not the, the glorious vision of mankind's future you had in your mind. Because you can't, because Dr. <laughs> Frankenstein could not create a human. Nope. He could, that, that, that was beyond him. That was never going to happen. Of course, when he compared, you know, the monster, Adam, to what he was trying to do, Adam didn't compare. And which set up all sorts of problems. It was a false expectation he had in the first place. It's fascinating because Frankenstein often gets called the modern novel. And typically people get caught up in the trappings and the horror of it. But the, the notion, and this is not something we've picked out of Frankenstein that others haven't before. It's a much discussed book. But the notion okay. that your ideal, the one you're pursuing, and the thing you make from it, may not meet, particularly if you cease to care about what you use or live in the world in which the thing you've made exists, right? Frankenstein's fallacy was that he lived only in the ephemeral. He was so caught up in the world that could be based on what he envisioned it to be that he ceased to exist in the world of the things he was making. Mm -hmm. Don't get caught up in that one yourself, you know? That's, that's my advice. It's also worth noting, just to tie this back into uh, you know previous parts of the discussion, that Frankenstein started out as a game that um, Mary and Percy Shelley and one other and Lord Byron were playing on a, I think a rainy day where they mm -hmm. each write a horror story and try to, uh, to, to chill each other. It was a writing prompt. The classic depiction of Mozart is a fiction. The idea of the crazed genius who did no study or research or effort, who put no study or research effort into his work, that Salieri despised him. Is all a byproduct of the play Amadeus. They were, in fact, close friends and both successful at their time. And Mozart did, in fact, put a dear amount of work into the material he wrote. He wasn't. And I think this is, this is probably one of the most pernicious reasons why people get caught in the idea that they're either too creative to make things successfully or not creative enough to make anything. They see what's touted as genius and see how little effort is portrayed to be behind it that things were just either made effortlessly or in ways that you couldn't pursue or even try to. No one pulls a, a piece of clay out of the ground and it is instantly already perfectly in the shape of a dragon or a man or anything, a brick. That doesn't happen. You, the, you take the material, you pull out, and then 
you work it. That's always how it, how it happens. Even people who are particularly gifted storytellers for whom it seems to come more naturally, one of two things happens. They either coast and they never get better or they continue putting work in. And because they were, and, and in that second group, which is an example of where Mozart might've been, because they, there are the tales of it seeming effortless, you assume the entire thing was. That's not the case at all. They just kept pushing with the, you know, they started with their natural talent, but they kept pushing. The thing is natural talent doesn't make up anywhere near as much of success as you think. I'm forgetting the famous quotation by a well-established author who more or less said, I know a lot of talented ruins. Mm -hmm. The two challenges, or I suppose the opportunities I invite you to at home are as follows. One, fundamentally, everything in your head before you try to write, before you try to invent, to create, to play with ideas, whatever you need to apply that creative state of mind to, before you do, most fundamental exercise you must do is this. Find a container, a shape, a vessel in which to put all the things that seemed important at the time that mattered, that you need, want, or desire to. All of the stuff that has to. Put it in some type of container or vessel or shape and then throw it away or put it to the side. Keep it away from you. Have it, give it its own space and time, right? You can pick it up later. You're not disposing of it. You're not getting rid of it entirely. Although maybe it's cathartic to pour all that out or set it on fire if it's legal and safe to do. Avoid declaratives. It doesn't matter what they are. Avoid self-declaratives. I am this, I am not that. Unless you add an exception. Today is it doesn't matter to be, if the exception's even right. Today is not going to be. Just take all of it, mm -hmm. put it aside however you can. And then, here's the second part of that challenge invitation. You're going to take the smallest thing you can work on of whatever you want to. It can be practicing an illustration if you're trying to do something visual. If you're trying to solve some type of big dilemma your company is involved with, don't work on the big dilemma. Ask yourself how the result of it affects a customer who will use this or has brought the situation to you. Ask yourself what it is they actually want to get that you're either trying to create a solution to or modify one you have to. Go to a very specific thing. Because it is much easier for the human mind to grasp the particulars than it is the infinite. Yeah, because the infinite is a wide open, empty space with no anchor points. And when you start li putting limitations on, you add anchor points. And one of the ones I was going to give, and this is kind of a very specific example, but one of, when I was trying to brainstorm, my least productive brainstorming sessions were always the one where I found myself orbiting around like a particular thing. Maybe it was a conversation between two people that I really wanted to happen, but I had no idea what to fill it with. Or maybe it was a particular storyline. This had to happen here. And I needed it in a certain amount of time. I needed, I needed to have it, you know, sometime soon. And no matter how much I circled back around to filling it, that, it, it, that alone never seemed to work. So either, so if you ever find yourself in that moment where it's like, I can't, none of the ideas I'm coming up with this work, you need to do one of two things, set it aside and don't think about it, work on something else <laughs> or like give yourself a limitation. Like, okay, I can't think of anything for these two people talking. All right, fine. Add an interruption, add, add something you can't uh, like, I, like I'm, my mind is spiraling around this event. Then this event is what I can't write about. 
Uh, in other words, if I can't come up with a conversation or I can't link it, then now I have to write a scene with the two of them where it's not where that conversation doesn't happen. You and I had this conversation about a chapter I was writing a while back. I was so convinced these three characters would get through a door on the ship they're on. I was so fixated on how they could finally open the password or whatever was required to get through that door that I could not figure out how until I realized they don't. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because what I wanted was getting in the way of what happens. Exactly. You've got to, like, you, sometimes you just have a block right there and you're so convinced that whatever you write must, not blo- a block, but sometimes you have an idea and you're so convinced whatever you write must have that idea that you're missing, like, that, that you're either, it's your only anchor point. Well, you can't define something with a single anchor point. When I was working for New York Life, I was given the assignment of rewriting the entire set of tax guidelines by age of the person needing to apply them. So whether you're 20 or 30 or 40, which portions of this were more relevant and how it would affect the current policies would affect you and your everyday life, right? Mm-hmm. In a couple of weeks' time, nothing big, right? Yeah. <laughs> Just pages upon pages of immensely depressing copy. Well, when you get, it was like Ben Stein had written it. When you get to Saturday, taxes won't matter. It was, God, I, I couldn't personally read through it because it was, the, the language itself was so depressing I didn't want to. The consequences of my actions would always be depressing. So the first challenge was tone. The second challenge was clarity because tax codes are complex and you don't really have much space online to say how they'll affect someone before they lose sight of why they're on the page in the first place. Mm-hmm. I'm not 70. I can imagine what that's like, but I talked to people who were. I talked to people in their 20s. I talked to the folks who were selling solutions and policies. I did my research. And this is important, going back to the idea of specifics. If you don't know, give yourself some avenue to find the things you need, right? I went to as many experts and folks who this affected as I could to get a sense of how they wanted to be spoken to and what needed to be conveyed to them. When I was revising brochures for New York Life, I asked a bunch of sales folks. This is an incredibly complicated set of policies with a whole bunch of potential modifiers and clauses and add-ons, let's call them. It could have been a massive brochure. I said, what's the one thing you would love to have your client take away? When you hand this to them, they said, honestly, just a tearaway checklist. What are the things I want to ask about for next time? What are the things I know I'd like right now that I'm not sure about? So there's three things. What do I know I'm interested in that I'm confused or need to know information about or, you know, just don't have any sense of needing or desiring, et cetera. So that for the hundred or so people the salesperson would see over the course of a few months, they had the exact things they needed to talk about with that individual in one page. It could be digital, it could be print. The rest of the brochure could be recycled. When I presented this to the branding department, they said, where'd you come up with that? And I said, it was a need of the people who use the tool you make. <clears throat> but that need had never been properly conveyed or, or successfully conveyed to the team developing the tool that was used. Companies are big and small, very capable of siloing and narrow-mindedness. It's just the way large institutions tend to work. Now, guess what? Your brain functions like that, too. <laughs> Wait, so the organizations we make that are modeling our way we think also do that? Yeah. Basically, <laughs> Shocking. So, and, and that's entirely, that's 
in one sense, and maybe this won't work for everyone, but in one sense, as a writer, as a creative, as anything, you're trying to get the various parts of your brain to talk to each other. And that's going to be awkward at first, because in some in some likelihoods, they probably never have or usually don't. In some cases, they have like bigoted grudges against each other. Your brain is bigoted against itself. There's the takeaway, folks. We're, we're being a little facetious here, but it's not entirely inaccurate. Right. There's a reason quantum computers, quantum computers are, are designed to mirror the way the brain works. As best we understand it currently, part of the way your brain decides things, your brain being a part of your body, mind, et cetera, that does the actual processing, as it were, for this purpose, mm-hmm. is through a series of relaying decisions out to multiple yes and no nodes, let's call them. And a bunch of those nodes go yay or nay. And whichever ones are more often right than not on a series of decisions get favored or biased toward. The ones that are more often wrong get less favored. That changes over time, and it's kind of a reductive way of describing how the mind works. But yeah, if you only give yourself, your mind, certain challenges that favor certain parts of the way your mind works and what can solve toward it, then eventually you're training your own mind to only accept and approve of the things that function best within that narrow purview. Which is one of the reasons, by the way, you cannot be content with the statement, I'm just not creative. Because every time you say it, you're reinforcing that. But it's not true. It's just a connection in your mind. It's about as accurate as saying, I am just a foot. Yeah, exactly. You can convince yourself that your foot is the only part of you that matters. It's not a good idea. And if you do get that in your head, you really don't want to reinforce it. So fundamentally, what... Everything we're saying here is in service to finding proof to the contrary. That's the only way, finding one proof to the contrary, and then giving yourself the means to allow the rest of you, of your mind, however you want to conceptualize this, the room to be, to speak, to say. And I guarantee you, proof to the contrary is common, it's thick on the ground, it's there for the taking. It's that declarative that's keeping you from seeing it. You're so convinced that you aren't, that you're not looking for the very obvious proof that you are. You know what kept me from writing books? As meticulous as I was in my academic work, I could spin off a 20-page essay with citations, et cetera, get an A plus to A minus on it in a day, and beautifully structured. Talk about coasting, right? Mm -hmm. But it was so much harder to do with creative writing. Because I didn't have as much to rely on, not in terms of faculty, but in terms of information, in terms of those essential truths that I could use. I realized I had to find those. And that took work and time and memory and space that I had to provide for myself. When I was interviewed recently for the show, Ignorance was Bliss, one of the weirdest parts we talked about in the creative experience is that you need to give a space to something that is bigger than you. And therefore, it cannot be contained entirely within you. So all these exercises of letting the parts of you that don't usually have the breath and the time to work try to, of taking everything you believe to be true and putting that to the side, are all in service of giving enough space, memory, and time for the thing that is not just you to be alive. It sounds weird at first, but it's how, for instance, about a month and a half ago, I realized There's a very simple solution to what happens when I finish writing the first book and don't know what comes next. One. And two, my God, this first book is 35 chapters with stuff in between. That seems big and will take a long, long, long time to revise. 
and you and I talked about this not too long ago. Mm-hmm. And I had heard murmurs of it before when about two-thirds of the way through the book, I wrote what was effectively the end of a book. I, it could have easily been the end of a season, the end of its own book, and I knew it when I wrote it. But my dilemma was that's not the end of the book, that's the end of the second part of the book. Okay, acknowledge that, move on. Finally, now, finally, after everything I've gone through these past few months, I sat down in mid-July and asked myself, what if it were seasons, though? What if it weren't a book at all? What if it were a television show? Take all the limitations, everything, the shape I've tried to put this into. Get rid of the shape for the moment, for this exercise. What if? And this, as you said at the beginning, is as much a critical as it is creative act right here. But the creative state came first. The challenge, as it were, to myself, what if this were just in a different shape entirely? Mm-hmm. What if it were a television show and had three seasons? Okay. Well, it would need three beginnings and three endings. So what would those be? And then that's the critical state I shift into. I'm not having to come up with anything. I'm having to sift through everything I know to find the answer, to identify what's probably there already. Now, obviously, the end of season three is the end of the book is... I had known at the beginning of season one is likewise the beginning of the book. That big, tremendous thing is the end of season two, because that's clearly the end of season two. Big, bombastic things happen. There's a reveal. We're left into cliffhanger. Simple end of season two. But then there were weird ones like, well, what's the end of season one? And what's the beginning of season three? And that's where I shift kind of back into the creative and go, well, I never thought of these beats, these chapters as the beginnings or ends of things. But if they were... Well, that makes the first season end on this weird kind of odyssey-like coda of two characters going down a river to meet the witch at the end and realizing it's not the first time that they have. And all the reveals and things that get discovered or suggested for the next book. So yeah, the end of the first book gets to have some answers, but starts to pull back and reveal such a, such a tremendous mystery, right? And that's generally how it works. It's like, you, you like the first story is always it is almost always the smallest because at the end of the first story you get the resolution and, and you create well one of the problems with the, the movies have always had uh, or sequel movies have always had is the first story it ends yeah wraps everything up and very often sequel movies try to redo the same thing but the more successful ones do one of two things they either pull out uh, the camera pulls back it, it pans outwards and you realize that the world is bigger. So maybe that part is self-contained and done, but what does that mean elsewhere? These truths are now there. What do we do with them? What, what, can, what is outside? Or the other one is, okay, now this moment has been resolved, but what other character traits led to this moment? Part of this, and we'll have to talk about this in another episode because it's a deep topic, mm-hmm. things that give the illusion of distance and time. There are discoveries, things that truths of the world and the characters that emerge more so in the last third of it will be the last book now and why would you follow the characters if they weren't still developing right and in writing those i sat and realized if this were all one book there wouldn't be enough space and time to give those what they needed to be in order to truly shine to show to glow whatever word you want to use there one two there's a difference between those revelations being the end of a book and being the third book in a series right it's maybe a year or change apart in terms of when each one comes out. When you have such important things occur and you don't have enough space between them, they don't matter as much. You can't breathe between them. They don't have the impact you'd like to. But when there is the big revelation, 
followed by the space before and after to breathe and take that in. It's in music, for instance, while you often hear the downturn or the fade before the crescendo, right? We need that contrast in order to fully appreciate what's about to happen and then mm-hmm. make sense of it after. So yeah, that's all crammed into one book. <laughs> Not enough space to take it all in, but split it into three. And suddenly this huge, deep thing the world expands into that it's been creeping toward the whole time comes to light. I'll leave this then with a musical analogy. There is, when you're escalating, like music should in general be escalating, especially when you're talking about like modern music. So you start out, you know, with a rhythm, you know, and, and a melody and a harmony and all of that, but you start getting more intricate and you start getting more dynamic, you start getting more energy. And you reach this point where you have layered just about as much as you can layer in when you, if you were to layer more in, it wouldn't, all it would become is a mess. So how do you escalate from there? And one of the classic ways in music is to drop half the instruments Mm -hmm. at that point. Um, so, so you're escalating uh, and all of a sudden, like you drop the guitar and you drop the rhythm and it's just the voice. And because the voice is all of a sudden no longer competing against everything else, it comes across as loud and as a, as a loud thing at a huge escalation, despite the fact that, in fact, you just de-escalated everything. Quiet is as important to driving things forward, to, to, to dynamism, to energy, as complication is. It's in the quiet that the small things can be heard. Exactly. And, or even the big things that only sound small. Right. Remember, the, remember the T-Rex from Jurassic Park. When you first hear it coming, it's a very distant thump and the shaking of water. And yet it means something big. It's a massive escalation told with a cup of water. And you only arrive at that moment if... You allow yourself to step aside, to play around in the truths of the world, the story and characters, fiction or not, that you're working with, and ask yourself what if, and follow that to why. There's plenty of time for what is, for selecting, for narrowing, for refining, for being able to decide at what moment in particular we cut to the treble in the glass of water, how much time we need to give over the course of the scene to escalating, to leading, to building suspense, because there is a timing to that beyond which it doesn't work and before which it also does not work right. In order to get to those decisions, which are often critical in nature, you have to allow the creative to thrive and to realize, as we've been talking about and probably demonstrating well or not at times throughout this episode, that it is entirely fluid. I'll say it this way, because it's probably... And this is a good example, right? I was trying to talk abstract instead of speaking to specifics. So I went to my father's grave for the first time since he passed. And I had this strange moment because the rabbi who had overseen the services lost her husband about a week ago to cancer as well. So I'm sitting there struggling with what to write, though I'm well incapable of writing to someone who was in this state while she was helping me live through the life I've been in at this time. And The sentiment I arrived at at the end was, after acknowledging that, yes, grief is weird and strange and that you will laugh and be sad, but if there are so many, if there are only so many beats 
to an individual life. They are of a near infinite kind that we can struggle and strive and try to make as much of a thing as we'd like. But we only appreciate and can convey it if we take the time to be quiet and to listen and convey what we find in that, what we in that moment find. So I think we'll probably touch upon how to write without writing more so next time and definitely talk about the seven rules that we've been prefacing these last few weeks. That doesn't mean the entire show will lead to that. We'll have other episodes as well. So probably for the next few months, you'll hear a bit of the seven rules and other topics that arise. Well, I was thinking as a, as a finish up for this episode, since we talked about prompts and ways of getting yourself out, why don't we leave the, uh, e- like each leave them with a prompt, a question okay. that they can ask to flesh out, a, the flesh out something in a direction they weren't originally intending. Go ahead. Mine would be, what does it smell like? Ooh. <laughs> they get to choose the it too, don't they? They get to choose the it. Uh, I mean, I was thinking more along, you know, along the lines of they're working on a scene. What does it smell like? They're working. But anywhere, drop that line in. If you're having a hard time thinking, what does it smell like? Mm, the prompt I would leave them with then. Close your eyes and describe it. Oh, yep. I have a character who's blind. And I, I don't advise doing this in any way. You're not going to be safe, of course. But yes, close your eyes and describe it. because. We so heavily rely on our sight. So see what the rest of that world is like. Until next time, I'm Jared Surf. This is Here Be Tigers, your storytelling guide. And here with me tonight is David Herman, a.k.a. Ramnesis of the Brothers Herman. We will see you all next time. A good story can excite us, yes. But the best ones, fiction or not, compel, inspire, or drive us toward the hope that we need for a better life. Remember, you don't need to know everything right now, but you do need to write. So make sure to like, review, and subscribe to us at Here Be Tigers. And until next time, take life by the tail. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.